This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Real Vision. I'm Ash Bennington. We are here with a conversation today to talk about the nature and future of Bitcoin. We have two fantastic guests who viewers of Real Vision will already be familiar with. Mike Green, Chief Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Simplify Asset Management, and Robert Breedlove, host of the What Is Money show. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Thank you for having us, Ash. Glad to be here. Robert, let's start with you. Uh, obviously, for people who watch Real Vision, for people who know your work, they know that you're a passionate advocate for Bitcoin. You're very well known in the community. For people who are not familiar with your views, give us the 50,000 foot overview of what your views of Bitcoin are and why you believe it's important to society and specifically to the welfare and well being of the United States financial and economic system. Sure. So the United States was founded on the principles of life, liberty, and property. Um, we have the pursuit of happiness in, in place of property in the American Constitution, but life, liberty, and property was actually inherited from the Magna Carta back in 1215. And it's my fundamental view that particularly strong property rights are essential to civilization. It's the only way we can resolve disputes over scarce assets without conflict. And if property rights are strong within a society, then people cooperate, people trade, people compete peacefully, and they create economic abundance. Uh, when property rights can be violated, uh, it's much more encouraging for people to fight over the rights to those uh, particular pieces of property. So. I think in that scope, for me, Bitcoin is really important in that it is just the most expensive form of property to violate in human history. And given where the world is today, as governments worldwide, where we are violating property rights rampantly via fiat currency inflation and other interventionist measures, I think Bitcoin is a powerful technology to hold those, those aggressions against property in check. So I think it's very important um, to the future of the United States and in many ways gets the United States back to its foundational principles. So, Mike, uh, there you have it. Robert's view, obviously a very sort of pro-American view, uh, an idea that Bitcoin is part and parcel of what's made the American experiment great and powerful in the past uh, from an economic and political standpoint. Uh, what are your views? What are your thoughts? Uh, and what's your reaction to what Robert just said? Um, so one, I think that it is cavalier to interject property rights as a substitute for the pursuit of happiness. I understand the origin claim from the Magna Carta, but it is very explicitly not included for that reason in particular. It's not the same thing. The pursuit of happiness um, and in particular property rights are addressed within the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution 
in which we have the dynamics of eminent domain and a takings clause in the fifth in the fifth amendment that specifies that taking can occur if being for the benefit of the public use and with just compensation the claims about inflation being theft or anything else being theft is a dispute with the use of that takings capability right it's a claim that they can't do this because i don't want them to but it is very explicitly addressed within the U.S. Constitution that we actually, as a society, have to work together. And we have elected representatives who we rely upon to make good judgment with that. That Robert happens to disagree with that is irrelevant to the discussion. So we've talked a little bit about the philosophical framework. Obviously, you guys have some dis, uh, disagreement about the way that you fundamentally see uh, the, the nature of uh, the U.S. Constitution. But let's talk a little bit more pragmatically. Uh, about what this technology does, Robert, uh, and why you think it's so essential uh, to the economic competitiveness of the United States that Bitcoin be part of our future. Yeah, sure. So it's probably helpful to define property. Um, you know, it's the relationship between the owner and the asset. So it's not the asset itself. It's the exclusively acknowledged, uh, typically legally enforced relationship between owner and asset. And the importance of property is that, again, we live in a world of scarce resources, right? The wants of every human heart are basically insatiable. So everyone wants more. So how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile scarce resources with unlimited demand? Well, we do it through conflict or we do it through property. And again, the social experiment that is the United States is the greatest testament to the uh, abundance and wealth that can be created under a civilization of strong property rights. Um, you know, when we were initially founded, we had very low and predictable tax rates. There were very low levels of government intervention. Um, and that actually led to the flourishing and, and capital stock that we all enjoy today. And it's not just in the U.S. we've seen this play out. You know, we saw this in, in Hong Kong, where um, low and predictable taxes, low levels of government intervention also led to an economic boom. There's, um, this is tied to economic axiom, basically, is that taxation reduces productivity and wealth creation. Uh, this is also in the Laffer curve, which is interesting that actually, as you actually reduce tax rates, you can increase tax revenues up to a point. So I think that um, to get to the US Bitcoin strategy, why I think it's so important, um, you first need to understand that, that this, this fundamental axiom of property and how important it is to, to civilization. But the U.S. is in a very interesting position because we have a global reserve currency in the U.S. dollar. We have enjoyed this exorbitant privilege, as it's been called, um, for quite some time. But with the emergence of Bitcoin, I think there's a very unique tactical advantage that the U.S. can, can, can use. And frankly, I'll walk through this. Um, step by step, and then I'll, I'd like to hear Mike's uh, feedback on it. So I think if you own the fiat currency spigot, you can basically produce currency ad infinitum and use it to acquire whatever you want. This is what uh, governments use fiat currency to do in the marketplace, right? If there's an economic downturn, we increase the money supply, we buy toxic assets, we buy co bad corporate debt, whatever it is, and we bolster markets. Well, the United States could equally use that position to start to acquire Bitcoin 
quietly even. They could do this via the shadow banking industry. Um, and after they've established a position, I think it would be intelligent for the United States to actually announce that they're holding Bitcoin in the national treasury. Um, they could effectively induce this geopolitical game theory and front run further accumulation. Um, if you understand the, the game theory of money, it's like to be the first adopter is to benefit disproportionately in anticipation of later adopters. Uh, and basically Bitcoin's following this, this path that gold uh, monetized along previously, just on a much more accelerated time scale. Uh, the United States could even go so far as to leverage the SWIFT system to facilitate Bitcoin distribution into other nation states. Uh, I think, and then on the back of that, as you've, in, you've induced this game theoretic dynamic to play out, you could actually use the purchasing power gains that would accrete to the national treasury to increase uh, tax revenue by, by basically reducing tax rates. Again, it's counterintuitive, but as you reduce tax rates, you can increase total revenue. They could then go and offer individualized tax treaties to global rich. So people uh, in other governments, other jurisdictions around the world that are suffering under oppression, they could offer them individualized tax treaties in which they stake Bitcoin with the U.S. government. Uh, this, I think, is very strategic for the U.S. to start competing for talent now before global population peaks, which it looks like it's going to do in the next 50 or so years, around 9 to 10 billion people, according to a number of studies. Uh, at that point, the actual competition among jurisdictions will be for talent. So to front run that entire curve would be brilliant um, from a geopolitical standpoint. I think they could then use the resultant tax revenue increase, which would come from this, these individualized tax treaties and the increases, uh, the offset from Bitcoin purchasing power increases to taxes. They could use this to subsidize nuclear power. By establishing additional nuclear power uh, infrastructure, they can use this to dominate the Bitcoin mining space, to become the global leader in hash rate. And then the other side effect of this is abundant energy actually increases both the productivity, economic productivity, right? Energy is an input to almost every economic process. And it would also increase the tax base further because the market would be even more productive. You'd have an even larger tax base. You then allocate this additional tax revenue to expand national defense, so the net outcome of this is that we maintain U.S. military dominance or even expand it. And you could also reestablish monetary dominance, which many could argue is sliding rapidly today. And that although the end game of this, you wouldn't necessarily have USD as a reserve asset, you would have the U.S. government holding the most BTC, which arguably, uh, if Bitcoiners are correct, is the most important asset you can hold in the 21st century. So other positive externalities of this is that the U.S. would cultivate the means to defeat China in either a hot or a cold war. We'd have both economic means and military means. We would also have created cheap energy in, in, in great abundance. This would give us the capacity to desalinate seawater or to even filter carbon out of the air. So this is a direct um, countermeasure to climate change. And then finally, as we've touched on a few times, reduced taxation increases wealth creation and innovation in addition to incentivizing individuals, talented individuals worldwide to immigrate into the United States, you can front run, front run this demographic shift uh, that will occur, like I said, in the next 50 years when the population peaks at nine or 10 billion people. Mm -hmm.
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So Mike, uh, Robert just laid out the core case for Bitcoin uh, and the national interest of the United States. Uh, Bitcoin, in his view, very much at the center of fiscal and monetary policy uh, for the future of the U.S., in his view. Uh, Mike, you're a macro hedge fund manager. You've spent a lot of time thinking about these issues, not just empirically, but normatively. What's your take uh, on Robert's view? Uh, what do you think and why? Well, first, I just want to make sure I actually understand the mechanism that he's describing. So the U.S., acquires Bitcoin from existing holders, does so quietly through a non-disclosed line item in the U.S. Treasury budget, and then benefits from the appreciation that occurs once it's been revealed that the U.S. has acquired Bitcoin. That's, that's how the U.S. generates the funds that you're identifying? That would be strategically sound. They can acquire it publicly or privately, but it would be in the best interest of anyone that it could, could acquire it to do so quietly first before announcing it. So you would want the U.S. government to be engaged in subterfuge with markets in order to accomplish your objective. What do you mean subterfuge? Not revealing markets? what they're doing, not disclosing in the, in the line items of the U.S. budget that they are acquiring Bitcoin. Would this be conducted through the is Federal Reserve? Is that not Reserve? what the U.S. government is doing now? Do we know how many dollars are produced or where they're allocated? Is there any audit yes, ability of we the Fed? Actually, yes, the Fed produces a daily report, actually, of its purchases. It produces a monthly report in distinct detail. The U.S. government produces a line item budget that discloses what money is being used for. That's actually approved by the U.S. Congress. If it's functioning well, sometimes it doesn't work all that well. But what you're describing is you want the U.S. government to, instead of acquiring, or the Fed, instead of acquiring mortgage-backed securities, you want them to just buy Bitcoin and don't tell anyone about it. Well, you can tell someone about it if you like, but strategically, it would make sense if you're going to front-run geopolitical accumulation that you'd want to do so quietly first. Why in the world would you object to them buying MBS but encourage them buying Bitcoin? I haven't objected to MBS. You absolutely have. You've you've objected to the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. When did I object to the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet? Robert, when you refer- I just advocated for it. So you would encourage the Fed to expand its balance sheet and to quote unquote print money and create reserves in order to acquire the asset that you currently hold. But if they're the assets of the that are held by banks, you object to that or- you don't really care. And so this is really just about buying Bitcoin. No, this is me laying out my strategy as if I'm in the driver's seat of the United States and I'm going to adhere my monetary strategy to Gresham's law. So I will spend and borrow the weaker money to acquire the hardest money that I can. And that's what I'm advocating for in this strategy. So you are going to adopt Gresham's law as the law of the land. That is the primary objective of the U.S. government is not to develop the capital resources of its population, not to raise the human capital, not to take the children of the United States and provide them with the greatest opportunity, but instead to acquire Bitcoin with the objective of using the appreciation of Bitcoin to fund expenditures in 
defense, nuclear power, desalinization. I mean, my God, Robert, you have just outlined a perfect central oil planning dream. Did you listen to the end of everything that I, I, I said? I did listen to the end. Okay, of so it's not central said. planning. No, it is central planning. You have literally just laid out, this is exactly how I want us to spend all the money. Yeah, this is how a centrally planned budget adapts to the technological realities of an unstoppable free market money. And this is also the only means by which a nation state can adapt to the new technological realities of the 21st century. So you're making an ethical claim against a strategy that I laid out. That I laid out. So, are we talking strategy? Or are we talking ethics here? Well, we're talking. We're talking, we're talking ethics, both. Statism should not exist at all. So statism should not exist, but the state should engage in the activities that you recommend. Well, the state should do what's in its strategic best interest, as all organizations should, and that's what I've just laid out. So you can describe what are the best moves from the state. You as an individual can predict this. Well, we can all make assertions. I think that's think actually, so I think that's actually a really important, I think that's actually a really important point, Robert, that what you are making is assertions, that Bitcoin is unstoppable, that it is the strongest, hardest money, that money is the most marketable good, right? You rely on the prescriptions of Austrian economics and the idea of a praxology that doesn't have any component of anything other than a first principles, this is what I believe to be true. Would you care to walk through any of the rest of the strategy or propose an alternative? So I would actually propose that part of the alternative is to focus us on exactly what I described, to start thinking about how do we maximize the value of human capital in the United States? How do we set conditions in place so that people can thrive and succeed? And part of the dynamic that we have in the United States is an extraordinary degree of wealth inequality that I completely agree with many of your concerns are predicated and enhanced by the behavior of the Fed who's stepping in to prop up asset markets and various other components. I actually completely agree with many of those concerns and decry many of the same decisions that you decry. The difference between the two of us is I actually want to give people a direction and then allow them to make the decisions as compared to saying, hey, this is the only possible path, right? I, I think we have terrible leadership, but the path forward is to get better leadership. Fixing the money, right, does not fix the world. It does not change the outcome. It never has, right? And you've actually heard this from your own guests, whether it's Eric Weinstein or Robert Pagot, they tell you over and over and over again that your solutions are ahistorical, to use a term I use all the time, and incredibly unlikely to succeed. And your, resp your response is, but I believe Bitcoin. Well, I guess this may be a point where we diverge because I don't believe you can insert quote unquote better leaders into a flawed incentive system and expect a different outcome. So long as people are in a position where authority can trump truth, which in a, just truth in the pragmatic sense of free market price discovery, free market innovation, free choice, ultimately, right? That people in that position of flawed incentive structures will govern it to their own advantage. So this idea of only thinking to the depth of we need better people in the driver's seat of these systems fails to look at the systemic flaws embedded in the, that socioeconomic fabric 
that's the problem we have today. So we're talking about, you're talking about the disparity of wealth. I mean, fiat currency inflation, as I'm sure you would agree, is a direct contributor to that. So why not give people the option to hold a non-inflationary money? I'm not, I'm not prescribing Bitcoin to anyone. I'm advocating for it for myself. I think it's the best strategic choice I can make as a market actor based on this historical narrative, based on this deduction from certain axiomatic presuppositions that are celebrated and explored in the Austrian school. Um, but I'm by no means prescribing Bitcoin to anyone. I'm just saying, why not give people the choice? I, again, people absolutely have the choice to choose Bitcoin as a speculative asset. But to prescribe the idea that the U.S. government, in lieu of using its power of the purse, using its power to actually tax, using its power to introduce excise taxes, if we wanted to tax goods that are coming from China or that are being sold to the U.S. public, we can certainly do that, as we've done historically. We can tax land, as we have done historically. We can tax corporate income much more aggressively. We can reduce the... the um, you know, avoidance of that by multinational corporations. There's any number of things that we can do that are very different than deciding that, you know what, we're going to abandon the reserve currency or the position that we have arrived at in the globe in favor of buying what Robert believes is digital gold. So how did the United States come into this position to be an economic superpower? Was it through taxation? The United States emerged in a position of extraordinary land surplus where a small population came into possession of a continent that we could then sell off pieces of that land. That was the primary source of revenue for the U.S. government. It was a combination of excise taxes, the goods that were sold into the United States were taxed, and through the sale of government-owned land that was accumulated either through the Louisiana Purchase or through the Mexican-American War, et cetera, the conquering of the native peoples of, the, of North America, et cetera. We were able to take a relatively fallow continent and turn it into one that had extraordinary surplus. We have extraordinary natural resources. We supplemented that with an immigration policy that brought human capital here, and the human capital is actually the source of the flourishing. It's not the money. Now, the fact that we adopted a system of, we are a nation of laws, not a nation of men, right? Completely agree with you. That was extraordinarily helpful. But again, as I pointed out, in the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, it specifically gives the government the power of eminent domain. So let's build a little bit uh, on the points of agreement uh, that we've seemed to have arrived at. I think uh, both Robert and Mike, you've both expressed uh, a sense of, uh, of concern with the current uh, state of, uh, the, of the political economy here in the United States. Uh, as you both have mentioned, wealth inequality, uh, we've seen obviously a fairly dramatic rise in inflation, uh, at least other, over the short term. There's a question about how transitory or not that inflation will be. Robert asked a question, uh, Mike, uh, about how you would see a system that would better develop human capital here in the United States. What's your view uh, of what a better system might look like? What improvements might be that we could make to the system to actually increase the level of human capital, human development here in the U.S.? Well, I think the simplest way to do it is to explicitly focus ourselves on it, whether it's in our immigration policy, designing our immigration policy, not necessarily to reunite families, but instead to bring over the best and brightest from around the world and offer them the capacity to flourish, 
by creating a system in which we're focusing the expenditures of the U.S. government on the education of our children and the facilitation of families raising children successfully. We adopted only recently, you know, post the Kennedy administration, the political expedi expediency of allowing public sector unions, which have flourished even as private sector unions have deteriorated. The idea that we have unions that are negotiating on the behalf of their members with nobody from the taxpayer negotiating on behalf of the taxpayer is completely absurd. Right, so we know many of the mistakes that we've made. We know that we have removed subsidies from people having children. We know that the costs of raising families have risen dramatically. It's not tied to inflation per se. The events of 1971 that many people refer to are a byproduct of the loss of productivity. They were an output, not the cause of all of the problems that Robert is actually identifying. What better immigration policy is there than low predictable taxes, strong rule of law, strong property rights, peace? I mean, these are the things I'm advocating for. And also on the 1971 point, real wages diverge from productivity around that time. So how does that, how does that relate it to productivity declines? Because productivity continued to increase from 1971, but real wages did not keep up. So the data sets that you're using for that in terms of the real wages fail to consider for the most part benefits that are associated with those real wages, things like the introduction of a uh, IRA plan, things like the introduction of publicly or corporate supported healthcare, et cetera. Those benefits are not captured in the real wage series that you're referring to. So by and large, a lot of the data that people are relying on for that, and whether it ranges from median household income to individual incomes, a lot of that data is just misrepresented in the, you know, what happened in 1971 type websites. So real wages have tracked the productivity since 1971, in your opinion? Real wages, inclusive of benefits, including retirement benefits, have largely tracked, yes. So why has the wealth disparity widened so much? Because we've seen an extraordinary explosion in the value of asset prices. Which is inflation. No, that's not inflation. That's an increase in asset prices. As you're describing inflation, typically people are referring to consumption baskets. When I say inflation, I mean specifically arbitrary expansions of the fiat currency supply. So this could be captured in asset inflation or CPI, which as we all know is a bullshit metric. So real wages inclusive of benefits have tracked to productivity since 1971, yet we've had a widened wealth disparity that's dispossessed the middle class but this has nothing to do with asset inflation. That's real value growth in those assets, not nominal. No, I didn't say that. And in fact, I've actually proposed very explicitly mechanisms that have facilitated the expansion of the valuation of those assets, right? Things like the changing market structure between active and passive management can very clearly drive that type of behavior, as can Fed policy in which it steps in to support financial markets. I'm not suggesting that that's correct policy. I'm saying the, the designation of moving off the gold standard as the cause of those problems is fundamentally flawed. How so? Well, in, in the simplest form, we had already begun to diverge from that prior to 1971. 
right? The dynamics of the London gold pool, the behavior in the 1960s in which the U.S. had to address the fact that the rest of the world's living standards were rising, that their consumption basket was rising, that they were no longer needing to produce exclusively for the United States, was contributing to dynamics in which the U.S. currency was already under pressure. And we artificially inflated that. The fact that you choose 1971, the point at which Nixon took us off of the gold standard or broke the Bretton Woods agreement, it's just, it's, you know, the equivalent of saying, you know, that is the day he died, but we're dying every day along that path. Oh, I agree with that. I, I choose 1971 as a well-known historic moment, but the divergence from the gold standard started well before that. Um, in the series I did with Jeff Snyder, I and mean, we went into detail on that. To get back to a fundamental point here, so inflation is taxation. I don't know well, if you let's, agree with that or not. Let's be actually really clear. What you're saying, when you say that inflation is taxation, what you're actually referring to is, is the dynamics when of... When you arbitrarily expand the fiat currency supply within a legal monopoly, you're imposing taxation on those who are legally compelled to use the fiat currency. I actually agree with that, although I don't know why the word arbitrarily is in there. Would you consider the events of March 2020 and the relief that was provided to a stressed system? Was that arbitrary? Of course it was. It was arbitrarily decided. It was not free market selected. So what would the free market solution to that be? Well, if we were on a hard money standard, people li very likely would have had adequate savings to weather um, storms. But, okay, so so you're you're making you're making wait a second you're making an assumption about what people would have had had we been on a hard money standard, and then saying no, it's not an assumption. It's just an evaluation of the incentives. No, it is an assumption. It is very much an assumption, Robert. You said if we were no. on this, then people probably would have. That's an assumption. It's an evaluation of the incentives related to the money itself. If money holds its value over time, I have an incentive to save. You are exploring and making, you are exploring and making a determination of the behavior of people under your analysis of the incentive systems that would have existed. You made a statement as to how people would have behaved given an incentive system that you believe would have existed had we remained on a hard money standard. I think savings rates are higher on a hard money standard based on the incentives prevalent in the marketplace. This is not a prescriptive prediction of exactly what would have happened. It's just a general statement about incentives and behavior within those incentives. Let, let me jump in here real quick uh, and just give Robert a chance to, to frame out his view uh, about Bitcoin and hard money. I know you've alluded to it a few times, but Robert, if you could uh, specifically make the case uh, for why Bitcoin is, in your view, the hardest money the world has ever known, uh, and also why a hard money system actually uh, incentivizes individuals, uh, workers in an economy, uh, as, well as, uh, as well as capital assets uh, in a way that you think is most favorable to the uh, economic well-being of the United States. Yeah, we've talked about this at length, I think, you know, both on Real Vision and the show. Um, I guess to try to keep it short and sweet, we're expending time and energy in the marketplace in an effort to economize our action, both through capital accumulation and trade. And we want, you know, the aim is to reward good decision-making toward that end and penalize bad decision-making toward that end. So that is the mechanism of profits and losses, right? If I create something in the world that people find valuable and useful, they'll spend it. 
if I can do so in a way where my inputs are less expensive than one, the output that I'm selling, then I create profit. That's effectively a residual time and energy I have provided to the marketplace. I want to then store that in something that is as resistant to debasement and as insulated from the risk inherent to the market process as possible. And that is what hard money is, right? That's what gold was. It's the, the trust minimized asset that also holds its supply most reliably and predictably over time, such that you can store economic value or this residual in it. Um, and it will most likely maintain or increase its purchasing power over time as the rest of the economy grows. So Bitcoin in that sense is the perfect money. It's a, it's a fixed supply asset, the first fixed supply asset in human history. Time and energy is the only other thing in actual fixed supply. Um, and therefore Bitcoin perfectly maps onto it. I'll leave it at that for the hard money argument. I mean, there's a lot more to unpack, but it's, it's pretty intuitive. I, I think that's actually one of the key flaws, right? Is the idea that it's pretty intuitive and there's a lot more to unpack, but we're not going to do so, right? Um, when you talk about a fixed supply of something, you assert that the only asset that we've ever had is Bitcoin. As many others have pointed out, there's copy-paste dynamics that could create rivals to Bitcoin that would themselves have fixed supply characteristics. We could choose to trust them. We could choose to believe that Bitcoin had the network effects of being the first mover advantage. But those, again, are assumptions. The second component that I would highlight on that is, is one, you yourself identified that that's actually not true, that we do have other assets, time and energy that are fixed in nature in some ways, certainly that are available to us at any one time to exploit. And part of the actual introduction of flexibility in a system is the dynamics of a system of forgiveness, something as a Christian you should understand quite well. Right. It, when it was originally introduced, things like limited liability corporations or personal bankruptcy, those are mechanisms of takings. They are taking away from somebody who is a creditor against me. Right. It is the state stepping in and saying, no, you don't have a claim against this person's life. You yourself in your podcast have suggested in your interview with Robert Pagot that you know we were moving back to a world of debtors prisons like that's functionally insane. It's Jonathan Pajot. Jonathan Pajot, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, no, I don't think I said we're moving back to a world of debtors' prisons. I said the mechanisms will have to change because capital and property is more expensive to violate. And I believe that's an economic reality. Um, you know, to your point, though, that time and energy is the other fixed supply assets in the world. How do we trade time and energy without an implementation of money. How do we do that exactly? So I actually do think that we are describing an implementation of money, right? That is one of the benefits of money that it does facilitate that, but nowhere in that does it have to be inelastic in its structure. Well, it doesn't have to be. People can choose whatever's best. Again, when you talk about the network effect dynamic, there is a value to a standard system, right? Whether we choose to make that Bitcoin or whether we choose to make that the US dollar, is somewhat irrelevant. Your assertion is that the strength of Bitcoin, the hardness, the 21 million cap, creates unique characteristics that allow people to preserve value. But I would also point out that those same characteristics, similar to a gold standard, where there is ultimately no mechanism for recourse that can be created if I've lost the gold that you've lent me. You make an investment in me, I've lost the gold. 
there's no mechanism for me to to return that to you right we introduce systems of personal bankruptcy limited liability corporations etc to facilitate the risk taking around that and part of that is actually the replacement of those losses in a way that doesn't lead to societal disruption nothing about bitcoin prevents insurance you can have insurance you can have custodial banking there's nothing that prohibits that on a bitcoin standard if I think about the dynamics of entering into a contract where I have borrowed Bitcoin and the supply of Bitcoin is perfectly fixed, where does the interest on the Bitcoin come from to be paid? That you have borrowed Bitcoin? I've borrowed Bitcoin. There, we've reached well, the year 21. You're putting that capital to work into some productive activity and you're paying interest to the bank that you borrowed it from. Well, it would be and a bank, bank or an individual. Some of that interest to whoever, whoever's savings funded your borrowing. So that underlying system, though, right? When you're talking about the dynamics of interest, ultimately transfers all of that and all of the rewards associated with, with it back to those who hold the existing quantity of Bitcoin. Right. No, is, if you're a good entrepreneur and your cost of capital is less than your profit, then you will pay the interest to the bank. The bank will make a profit. They'll pay the interest to the lender or the saver who will also make money on their capital. And you'll also make money on your capital with being a smart entrepreneur. But it's a closed system, Robert. There's a finite quantity of Bitcoin. What's a closed system? That's not. No, no. Just because there's a finite quality, quantity of Bitcoin, that does not make the economy that it supports a zero sum game, as you're implying. Okay, so let's actually walk through this. There's 21 million Bitcoin, right? I establish an interest rate of 5%, right? So now I lend out Bitcoin. Where does somebody get the additional 5% Bitcoin to pay to me? Because the entire system, the entire system, I mean, again, you have to recognize this, the entire system then becomes zero sum, where I, it cannot create value in Bitcoin terms. I think you're conflating the fixed supply of Bitcoin with a fixed supply of capital goods in an economy. The 21 million Bitcoin can be used to facilitate an economic uh, a capital stock in an economy of any size. We could have two buildings or we could have two, 2 million buildings. So when you say, where is the additional Bitcoin going to come from? Uh, you'd be paying, and first of all, you're getting into this whole debt thing again, where this may be another point we diverge. You think debt is indispensable to investment and uh, economic advancement, I don't think it's the case. I actually think our excessive indebtedness in the world today, again, is a product of the incentives inherent to fiat currency. That again, according to Gresham's law, we have an incentive to borrow and spend the weak money and acquire anything that cannot be debased in the process. So I think, and to one last point here, just because Bitcoin supply is perfectly inelastic, this does not prohibit the emergence of free banking in which we could have elastic money via custodians on top of it. Banks could freely issue currencies backed by Bitcoin, full reserve or fractional reserve, trade from their own balance sheet on their own reputation, which would add the needed, well, needed, I take issue with, but some people believe needed elasticity to the money supply, even on an inelastic monetary standard. So just very quickly, can we agree with the Friedman equation of MV equals PQ? Right. In other words, the supply of money times the velocity of money equals the price level times the quantity of all goods, capital and consumption. 
I have some issues with the velocity of money as a plug, but I am familiar with the equation. It's not a plug, right? It's it's a statement. And so then the question becomes, if you hold M totally fixed, for there to be growth in P times Q, you have to change the velocity. I think we could spend an hour arguing about this alone. Um, to answer your question about how do you borrow Bitcoin at 5% and then pay it back, where do you get the additional Bitcoin? You go into the marketplace and create a good or service that customers are willing to part with their Bitcoin to acquire and create a profit margin for yourself as an entrepreneur that exceeds your cost of capital that you pay to the bank. The bank then hopefully has a profit margin built in for themselves to be a going concern and then pays that interest out to the saver that uh, was whose capital was mediated to you as a borrower. So there's nothing about fixed supply money that prohibits this in any way. Yeah, un unfortunately, that's just- I think you're conflating a closed no. system of the monetary base with the economy. I, it's just I'm, not the I'm, same thing. No, I'm actually not. That's why I introduced specifically the MV equals PQ equation, right? Because the economy, the P times Q, is defined and growing under your framework. And as long as the population grows, and you can hypothesize about whether we'll hit peak population in 20, 2050 or 2100, the reality is, is that when you talk about a system that is limited in its capacity to allow M to expand, the only possible solution is an expansion of velocity of money. Right, the velocity of money is functionally just interest rates, and you are creating higher Aren't and higher levels. expanding Q? They can't, Robert. That's actually the point, right? You can't. The, they the don't expand quantity of goods and services. They can expand it, and they can do so profitably, as long as we understand that occasionally losses will occur as well, and that actually does require flexibility in the system. We've never had. You're you're exactly correct about one thing. We've never had a perfectly hard system like Bitcoin, for one very obvious reason because it has no mechanism for expansion of the money supply under human ingenuity. At least the gold but system it, it had, does. no, it doesn't. You cannot expand the quantity of Bitcoin. It is under a fixed schedule and you are presuming that the schedule of Bitcoin issuance and the cap at 21 million was delivered from on high in a flawless and perfect fashion. Right? that's simply absurd to imagine that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, this has been a fascinating conversation. The last, uh, the last topic we've been talking about here, uh, the quantity of money, a fascinating illustration on how you guys both view uh, the economic system in fundamentally different ways. I wanted to give you each an opportunity before we wrap uh, to restate your positions, uh, give the audience some final takeaways, some key points uh, that you'd like to leave them with. Robert, first to you. It seems to me that there's a conflation here between fixed supply money and an economy that it supports. It does not mean that um, if you have a zero sum game in money, whereas my me acquiring Bitcoin is you losing Bitcoin, that does not mean that the economy it facilitates is zero sum. You can still 
have additional goods and services produced in that economy, which would accrete to the hard money as expanded purchasing power. So I think that's a really important point. Um, I would also add that, you know, as a social construct itself, I've heard Mike say before, not today necessarily, that Bitcoin is too good at scarcity. And I think this is very, very much a flawed argument because as a social construct, money is always scarce. Again, its demand always outstrips its supply because people always want more stuff and money is a call option on all the stuff, right? It makes all the sense in the world. But as a particular implementation, money can break down if the supply is violated too quickly. That's why people zeroed in on monies with supplies that were resistant to change. This is still true in, in the fiat currency world today. You know, the dollar is one of the hardest fiat currencies. Um, that may have changed in the past couple of years, but it was the case prior to 2020 at least. So the idea that a money that's too good at scarcity is just saying that it's too good at one of its primary monetary properties. And I think if you look at the opposite case, a money with no scarcity, I mean, that's a fiat currency hyperinflated into worthlessness. Um, and then the argument that, okay, in the event we have economic losses, we need some elasticity in the money supply, that's fine. Let freely operating banks add as much currency to the supply as they want, trading on their own, from their own balance sheets on their own reputation. Um, if you do this from a through a central bank model where one group can expand the currency supply that others are forced to use, you're just advocating for coercion at that point. Uh, it's it's a who who called it taxation without legislation. That's the nature of central bank fiat currency inflation. So I think it's a very slippery slope argument to try and argue that we need some centrally planned uh, inflation to overcome certain types of economic loss. Mike, over to you on the quantity theory of money and just more broadly on the conversation, final thoughts, key takeaways. Yeah, I mean, what Robert describes when he talks about expanded purchasing power is just another solution to that MV equals PQ equation where he's just saying, okay, the price level falls, right? Um, that certainly has potential ramifications. Now, I find it interesting that the community of Bitcoiners tends to ignore declining prices or decry them when we look at things like flat panel TVs or anything else. Now, that that doesn't matter, right? That's all, you know, uh, various forms of hedonic adjustments. Um, but the reality is, is that we do actually have declining prices for many of the goods and services that we acquire in our society, whether that's healthcare that allows us to live longer than we've ever lived before, whether that is electronics that allow us to have forms of entertainment that we've never considered before, et cetera. Right? That framework, he's just describing an alternative to the velocity rising by saying P falls, right? Purchasing power expands. Uh, the challenge that that creates, and again, this was explicitly identified for him in his conversation with Eric Weinstein, which in my view, he's chosen to ignore, is that it restricts the use of debt. The introduction of the idea of generally falling prices reduces people's willingness to enter into a financial contract in which there is a fixed exchange of currency in exchange for the use of that currency in a non-equity form. Right? That's actually a very valuable tool that exists in our economy. Right? We allow people to lend against homes. Why? Because it facilitates the purchasing of that home without necessarily the participation in the equity of the individual. Right? That works to our benefit. We've also introduced things like 
bankruptcy, et cetera, that allow people to solve for mistakes that they have made without cutting themselves off from a societal system going forward. Now, Robert's articulation of things like the free banking era, et cetera, that's just a way of introducing the idea that you're going to effectively have equity risk within the banking system. The idea that Robert is really objecting to, and it's one that I very much share, is that, and this is something, again, that in his conversation with Jeff Snyder, he apparently did not appreciate, we don't actually have central banking in the traditional framework. So the traditional framework of a central bank is, is that it lends at high rates of interest against good quality collateral. We don't have that system. What we have is a system in which the central bank has become the purchaser of last resort. It is not the lender of last resort. It buys MBS and provides reserves in exchange. It buys treasuries and provides reserves in exchange. It's a perversion of the system. I agree with Robert completely that that is not a good outcome, but in no way, shape or form does Bitcoin solve this. So we end uh, on a point of limited agreement with Walter Badgett. Uh, Robert, Mike, thank you both for coming here. Two very distinct views of the world. Uh, and we appreciate both of you coming on Real Vision to articulate your point of view. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ash. Thanks, guys. Thanks for watching, everyone. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.